Um, right, if you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter uh, 5. The Gospel of Luke, yes, that's right. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. I prepared something last week totally different, and then I was told by uh, Simon, who keeps us all right, uh, that I was meant to be preaching on something else. So, this is what it is this week. Uh, we'll be pre- if you haven't got a Bible, by the way, we'll be projecting it on the screen. Um, good morning, welcome to Jubilee. If you're a, a visitor here this morning, uh, thanks so much for joining us. If you're an Alpha guest, I see a few Alpha guests. Alpha is going fantastically. I was there just last Thursday. Brilliant feel again. Lots of uh, guys and girls coming and listening and worshipping. Um, so if you're one of the Alpha guys, um, you're very welcome. If you're a guest of Sama uh, or you've come to watch this baptism, you too are welcome. We love having, listen, we love having visitors here encountering, encountering the tangible love of Jesus. And really, that's what baptism is about, an outward declaration that we who have trusted Jesus have encountered the living Jesus in a radical, life-changing, no-going-back way. Wonderful, amazing when you really get into the lives, of the, uh, get into those stories deeper of one person after another coming to Christ. And really, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, a historic eyewitness encounter with this Jesus, outrageous, the shocking real deal Jesus that changes a man's life forever. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you know what? Watch out, because you too might encounter him as we look through this passage. Are you up for that? Are you prepared for that? So Luke 5, um, 17 to 26. One day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him, lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, boom, right in front of Jesus. Boom is not in that translation, by the way. When Jesus was, saw their faith, he said, friends, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, God, has authority on the earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, this man stood up in front of them, took what, uh, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed, and give praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a remarkable God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we too in this church over the years have seen remarkable things. And I thank you, Lord, that life with you, the adventure of faith, that we walk with you, when we encounter you, life is remarkable. Life is wonderful. Life is amazing. Life is costly, but worth it. And we pray this morning as we go through this, uh, chapter, as we go through this passage of your word, this encounter with you, that we will get something of the wonder and glory that it is to meet you, to encounter you, to follow you, to trust you in every single thing we do. So Holy Spirit, be with us as we listen this morning. In Jesus', in Jesus name, amen. Amen. So it couldn't be more dramatic, could it? News has spread like wildfire. Jesus is back in town. People have flocked from all over the place. Why? Why? Because he was a remarkable man, was this Jesus. Incredible healings, wonderful teaching, stunning compassion for the outcasts and the downtrodden, a beautiful life, a totally unique life. People wanted to see this Jesus. People wanted to hear this Jesus. So they came from everywhere. Fascinating. And so here in the midst of one of Jesus' many gatherings in someone's home, suddenly, suddenly, something curious starts happening, doesn't it? While Jesus is talking and teaching, and while others are glued to his every word and expression, bits of dust and reed start falling from the ceiling. After a few moments, it gets worse. Thud, thud, suddenly chunks of first century plaster start dropping from above. Everything stops. Everyone looks up, and to their surprise, they see four pairs of hands rooting around, making a hole in the roof, bigger and bigger, wider and wider. What on earth is going on? And then suddenly, a paralytic man, he can't walk, is lowered by ropes through the roof and drops at Jesus' feet, center stage. Wow, imagine it. We've got Jesus' tension now, haven't we, boys? And so what we've just read, really, is a conversation between Jesus, the paralytic man, the man who can't walk, and the others in the room, centered on this miraculous healing, this miraculous, this amazing entrance. And what I think really stands out here, as I've read this, and clearly when they're, and clearly in their commentary, is how shocked, shocked people were by Jesus. Verse 26, they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. And so this morning, um, what I'd really like, I'd like to draw out three things, three things that shocked Jesus' onlookers, three things that might, will, should shock you if you really understand this story, shocked by Jesus. So firstly, they were shocked by Jesus' forgiveness, weren't they? Let's go back a little. The roof falls in, the man comes down, and there Jesus is presented, if you like, with a man on a mat, clearly unable to walk, clearly thinking, uh, this could be, my, this could be his, t- his day. Ta-da! Here I am, Jesus. Wave your magic wand, and I'll be able to audition for Strictly next week. And then, silence. Everybody waits. 
and watches to, what, to see what Jesus is going to do next. And Jesus very surprisingly says, friend, your sins are forgiven. What? He should have gone to Specsavers, shouldn't he? What planet are you on, Jesus? Have you missed something here? Matt Lord, through the roof, can't walk, can't stand, desperate to see you heal me, and friend, your sins are forgiven. Sorry? I mean, it's really kind of you and all that to forgive me, Jesus, but don't you see, I have just made the entrance of my life here. Roof crashing isn't my usual mode of entry. I'm aware of the invention called the door. This is serious. I'm paralyzed. I've got a more immediate problem here. I can't walk. Friend, your sins are forgiven. That just doesn't cut the mustard with me, Jesus. That's how the paraplegic man could have responded when he encountered Jesus, couldn't he? That's probably how I would have responded. Maybe you too. You see, for this man, his disability will have been all and everything to him. His whole life will have been lived on a mat three feet wide, six feet long. Someone would have had to feed him, carry him, clothe him, move him, clean him every day. He'll have probably been a beggar, no money, no job, no influence, no future. That's how he would have seen his life. And so now he's here before Jesus thinking, Jesus, give me the desperate desperate desire of my heart, the thing that will make it all okay, all okay. Make me walk again, Jesus, and all my troubles will be over forever. Make me walk again, and I'll be the happiest man alive. I'll never complain again. I'll never be unhappy again. Come on, Jesus. Click your fingers. That's how a lot of us approach Jesus, don't we? And over the years, I've approached Jesus many times that way. And over the years, I've noticed often what we, I, ask for and what we get can be very different things. Jesus often surprises us. Why? Because Jesus sees deeper, much deeper. You see, in this man's life, Jesus sees his bigger problem much bigger than his physical condition, much more destructive than his disability. And he hits it first. And you know what? It offends us. It shocks us. Jesus is saying, yes, I understand your problems, son. I really do. I've seen your suffering. I've seen the rejection. I see your desperate need for healing, radical healing. And do you know what? I'll get to that in a minute. But let me help you realize this first. The main problem in your life is not your suffering, what you think you need the most. It's actually your sin. Let me say that again. The main problem in your life is not your suffering, what you think you need the most. It's actually your sin. Wow. That's actually probably Jesus' biggest message for all of us today. Sin is our biggest deal. You see, for this man, his hope lay in the fact that if Jesus healed him, it would be paradise. If Jesus healed him, everything would be okay. But we all know that's just not how life works, does it? 
Give him two months. Give him six months. After he's gotten over the excitement of being healed, he'll, he'll realize that that excitement won't last. The excitement never lasts. Because true happiness, lasting happiness, is a really confusing thing, really. Have you ever thought about it? Let's think about it now. When you're young, there are a few young people here, when you're young and the world seems to be your oyster, you start off thinking uh, happiness is normal. That's what it's meant to be like. Happiness is natural. We should all be happy. In fact, really deep down at the bottom of your soul, the only reason, you think, the only reason why people aren't happy, older people, is because they've messed up. That's how you think early on in life, don't you? I did. Is that you this morning? Is that what you think now, all you students and young people out there? But then roll the clock as time moves on, as life kicks in, as wrinkles become more obvious, as kind of hair falls off your head and starts growing out of your ears. Just talking about me. As time moves on, we become burdened with the increasing responsibility of work of marriage, of kids, finances, pressures, etc., etc. We move from watching things like Peppa Pig to watching Panorama and the News at 10. The shocking reality of life hits us in the face. We start realizing that happiness is not all that it's cut out to be, actually. We desperately yearn to be happy because we find it so difficult to be fundamentally, deeply consistently happy. You suddenly realize that you were wrong actually about happiness 20 years ago. Unhappy people aren't the ones you, who've messed up after all. Why? Because you're unhappy. Yeah? If you really don't get this, if you really don't understand this, I would suggest you haven't lived long enough yet. Just Give it time. As we live life, happiness is the thing we strive for the most and never seem to quite get there. Prince Charles once said, there remains deep in the soul, if I dare use that word, sorry Jill, I hope I haven't offended you. No. <laughs> um, Prince Charles once said, there remains deep in the soul, if I dare use that word, a persistent an unconscious anxiety that something is missing, some ingredient that makes life worth living. That's what he said. The root of discontent, the root of the discontentment of the heart goes deep. It's very true, isn't it? Even when, we're, even when we seemingly get all we want. Some of you might, might be in that situation now. There's a journalist called uh, Cynthia Heimel who once wrote about her experience of some uh, of the celebrities that she got to know throughout her life. She got to know quite a few uh, that were all chasing that big dream, uh, the big dream of stardom. And she noted before they became famous how really hard they worked, striving for fame and stardom. However, finally, when they became famous, when they, when they got success, uh, when they got the success that they were looking for, suddenly it turned out all very different. This is what she says, and I've put it up on the screen. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. 
The celebrities that I know were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, they worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and there was still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. What she's saying? She's saying every one of them became more manic, more angry, more unhappy, more unstable when they got the deepest desire of their heart. That is very insightful. What's the desperate desire of your heart? And so when Jesus says to this paraplegic man, friend, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, yeah, I see what you're going through. I really do. But you have underestimated the depths of your longings. He's saying, by just asking for me to heal your body, you are not going deep enough. He's saying, if you want real happiness, if you want real joy, you need much, much more than that. You need to change, hear this, you need to change the very thing that your heart most wants. Me, Jesus. Did you hear that? That's really what the Bible calls sin. Putting other things before God. Sin is saying, leave me alone, God. Sin is, say, sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity and worth and security in your relationship and service to God. In short, sin is saying, send me to hell. A place where God isn't my choosing. For some of you, that might be an unusual way of thinking about sin. Because it isn't that simple as just breaking divine rules. It isn't primarily telling lies and having affairs and punching someone in the face. Control yourselves. Try and, try and avoid those kind of things, particularly if you're here this morning. But all these actions the Bible tells us, are descriptions of something much bigger, much deeper, a heart that doesn't put God, Jesus, first. Whether it's your careers or money or children or family, what people think of you, romance maybe, success maybe, education, promotion, whatever we look to as the desperate desire of our heart, every joy that doesn't have Jesus as the central gladness of that joy, will, in the end, burst like a bubble. Do you see that? Uh, Cynthia Heimel, again, the journalist we mentioned earlier, not a Christian lady, goes on to say quite cynically something that took my breath away and got me when I first read it. She said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish, then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. My brother did exactly that. Jesus says to this man, hear this, Jesus says to this man, paralyzed, desperate, longing for healing, I am not going to play that rotten trick on you. I am not going to just grant you the deepest wish until it's no longer your deepest wish. 
I want to heal your soul deep down. I want, to have re I want you to have real, everlasting, confident joy in me. So therefore, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now the barrier between you and me, the life-giving, loving God, is gone. Now you have the power to deal with life everlasting. Now you can rush into the arms of a loving Father God and be cherished forever, no matter what your world looks like or comes your way. This is the joy. This is a joy that braves the storm, that goes on eternally, that cannot be taken away. This is the deepest longing of your heart, if you're really honest. If you're not a Christian here this morning, do you need to hear that? Do you get what Jesus is really saying is wrong with you? What's really wrong with all of humanity? Where are you searching for joy? Is it working? Will it last? Are you sure? Jubilee and all the conflicts and trials and ups and downs and uncertainty and depression and fallouts and disagreements and illnesses and failed asylum cases and all that stuff piled way up high in front of you, will you keep putting Jesus first? Friends, your sins are forgiven. Wow. So they were shocked by Jesus' forgiveness. That was the long point. The two points, the next two points are shorter. Secondly, they were shocked by who Jesus said he was. Did you notice how the religious bods reacted? You might have reacted the same way too. This is what it says. Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And do you know what? They were right, of course. Jesus was making a huge, huge claim. Did you hear it? They did. By forgiving this man's sin, he was essentially saying, all sin is against me, God. Because you can't forgive sins unless they're against you, can you? And if you really think about it, only your creator God can say that. Jesus was claiming right in the midst of everybody to be God, and everyone knew it. Outrageous, really. What do you think about that? C.S. Lewis said this about Jesus, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level, of, with, a ma on a, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either, either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or some... Uh, or, some, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. Lunatic, liar, or Lord, that is your choice this morning. But before you jump to conclusions, because I know what I would have said 15 years ago, look at the quality of his teaching. Take a look at his, at his life. Was this really the, the life of a fraudster, a loser, a liar, a crazy guy? Of course it wasn't. Jesus is probably the most influential guy that has ever rocked world history. Very few people come close. 
Someone put it this way, no one has ever discovered the words Jesus ought to have said or the deed he ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you, always taking your breath away because he's better than you could imagine. That's Jesus through and through. When they looked at Jesus, they felt, they knew, they saw, they were looking through the substance of human flesh at the very being of God himself. And you know what? It shocked them to the core. Does it shock you? Do you see that? Do you see it? Do you see at least something of what people in Jesus' time saw about this man? The very reason thousands of people actually overnight started worshipping him. That doesn't normally happen. It takes much longer than that. That's why these onlookers here were amazed and gave praise to God. That's why they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things here today. Have you? Jubilee, will you open your eyes? Will we open our eyes more and more to the wonder of God in our lives? Will you not be shaken all the time? Will you stop being frantic all the time? Will you have the poise that is rooted in the truth of God? Will you live by faith that takes you on this amazing adventure with him? This adventure that spans the whole globe, all of history, every single part of you, all the communities that God puts you in. Will you? And you know what? If the people here who don't know Jesus yet, will you now see him for who he really is and then do what is only appropriate and light and right? Let him be the one who takes your hand and leads you like a groom takes his cherished bride down the altar. Will you? Will you trust in this Jesus? Why not? So they were shocked by his forgiveness and the, uh, what, what the soul deeply needs. They were shocked also by who he was, God himself. Because if you really think about it, if he's God, that changes everything. And finally, to end, they were shocked, shocked, dramatically shocked by the cross. Cross? There's no cross in my reading. What are you talking about, Raj? One of the greatest questions of all time, apart from who's going to win the X Factor? No, no. One of the greatest questions of all time is here in this passage. A lot of Bible scholars say that. And, it's, and, 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 and actually one of the Bible scholars looked into this in, in loads of details and he said millions of words have been written about this one question that we're going to talk about uh, over 20 centuries and still we don't know what the answer is. What's the question? Verse 23 says this, which is easier? Jesus said this, which is easier? You're, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Which one is it? To say, I forgive your sins, or, hey, buddy, get up and walk. Which one is it? You see, when you first read this, it seems obvious, doesn't it? Of course, it's much easier to say, hey, dude, your sins are forgiven. That's easy. Get up and walk a bit harder. But, hey, your sins are forgiven. That's easy. But you know what? It's not as simple as that. Have a look at it. 
When Jesus uses the verb say here, the Greek word is actually much more than just say. It doesn't mean just to utter meaningless words. It means to utter words that actually make something happen. Words that have a certain effect. A bit like at the beginning of the Bible when God said, and God created light, and God created light, and it happened. God spoke things into existence. When Jesus says, get up and walk, his very words make it happen. That's what the Greek is getting at. That's what these guys will have understood when Jesus is asking that question. Awesome and miraculous, really. So what? How does that help us answer the question? Well, this is it. When Jesus says, I forgive your sins, he's saying it's one thing for me to heal you, but it will be very different, much, much harder, infinitely harder for me to effect the forgiveness of your sins, to make it happen, to say it through, if you like. Why? Because that involves the cross. As we, as we got a hint from our Neil last week, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we start to see why Jesus was so dreading the cross. Last week, we read um, how before he died, Jesus was overcome with torment. And um, Neil talked about sweating blood. Uh, literally, Jesus was literally shaken by what was ahead of him. Mark 14, 3 says, Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. Jesus said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. In fact, we hear that heart-wrenching, we hear the heart-wrenching truth about what Jesus really thought about the, uh, the cross and his death in Luke 22 a bit later on. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Get me out of this. I can't bear it. Take this cup that I'm about to drink away from me. And even on the cross, Jesus shouts in a loud voice one of the most famous and painful cries of sorrow ever heard throughout of all of history. Matthew 27, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabaksani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry, the British preacher Spurgeon tells us, distills, uh, di- uh, distills the, um, Jesus' cry, Spurgeon tells us, distills the consecra- concentrated anguish of the world. When Jesus asks the question, which is simpler, to heal someone's physical disability or to heal the very scar on all of humanity, sin, he's looking to the reality, the brutal reality of the cross. That's why, the, that's why there's a question. That's why saying get up, get up and walk might be simpler for Jesus rather than forgive your sins. He's beginning to confront in his soul uh, as never before the ultimate and deepest agony of Calvary, an agony that goes on infinitely beyond any physical torture aspects of his suffering, something very different to what any human being has ever gone through or, thankfully, will ever have to go through. When Jesus pleads, remove this cup from me, that's what's causing him such terrible, painful grief. What's in the cup? What's in the cup? Neil helped us with that a little bit last week. I'll tell you what's in the cup. C.J. Mahoney writes, this cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin throughout all time. That's what's in the cup. He can't sin is a big deal. 
He can't just ignore it like you and me. Forgiveness of sin always, always, always costs someone. It doesn't just vanish into thin air. It demands a serious response. The God of the Bible is just and righteous, but he's also merciful and terribly gracious. And so instead of you, he takes it all. He drinks your cup and mine. He sees what hell is like, the hell that you were choosing. Total God-forsakenness, total abandonment, total rejection. And he goes there so we don't have to if we choose to trust in this wonderful Jesus. On the cross, Jesus shows his absolute love to us through suffering. Jesus pays the penalty that you and I deserve for all of our sin so that we can live the life we were created for in intimacy and closeness to him, no longer separated by our sin with all the riches and blessings of a lavish, generous God, with all the hope and certainty that God assures us forever in him, in Christ. It costs us nothing. It costs him everything. Do you want to know how much Jesus loved you? Do you really want to know how much this King of Kings adores you and, and, and totally um, loves you? That much. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life with God. Hebrews 12 2 says this, for the joy set before him, what joy? What joy? You. You're his joy. For the joy set before him, you. He, Jesus, endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the joy of the joy news of Jesus that we're reminded of every day when we get together, when we see men and women being baptized, when we break bread together, when we serve Jesus in all the ways we do, when we, uh, uh, when we see a hand go up at Alpha, when we remember his sacrificial all-out cross. What a God. What a truth. What a future. What's your question? What is stopping you? Let's stand. If the band could come up, that would be great. We're going to worship now. We're going to end the uh, morning in worship. We're going to be praising this Jesus. But I also want to give an opportunity for those of you who may not know this Jesus yet. Okay? Uh, some of you from Alpha, some of you might have just popped in, a friend might have brought you in today. Um, there is something remarkable, like this man who totally put his life in Jesus. It changed his life forever. There was a guy on Thursday who put his hand up. And you know what? It will change his life forever. It changed my life forever. Those of you who are nodding know what I mean. And the way we trust this Jesus is very simple yet phenomenally life-changing. We say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. And you think, oh, that's easy. But you say sorry like you mean it. 
You say sorry from the depths of your heart for all your dishonoring of him, disobedience of him, and disregard for him. You say sorry for not putting him first and foremost in your life. You say sorry from chipper chasing all the other things. That is causing anxiety, stress, stress, and all sorts of stuff in your life. That's the sorry that Jesus is looking for. But you know what? When you say sorry, he totally, totally accepts that. He totally, totally pours out grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And he deals with a thing that is eating away at your very soul. Seems simple. Sorry, and he forgives you. And do you know what? After that, the Bible tells us there's a celebration in heaven that goes on and on and on. That is a remarkable thing, and that's just the very start of it. Yes, it's costly to follow Jesus. I'm not going to um, you know, beat around the bush. It's very costly to follow Jesus. It changes your life forever, and so it should. But you can say yes to Jesus this morning. And so if that's your prayer this morning, as we're singing, why don't you just say, sorry, Jesus. And when he floods you with his grace and mercy and forgiveness, your only appropriate response is, thank you so much. Do you get that? Let's worship this Jesus. And if that's you this morning, if you said that prayer, if you pray to Jesus, let someone know about it. Let me know about it. Speak to somebody. Because we just love hearing news like that. It lifts our faith that more and more people around the world are trusting in this true saviour. Thank you, Lord.